Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. This is going to sound morbid. I mean, when don't I sound morbid? But I think when I die, if there's anything after this life, and if that afterlife contains, like, an introductory film, I'd like that film to be narrated by Bob Balaban. His soothing voice would be just the thing to help me adjust to my new reality. And I'm sure he gets that all the time. I'm sure people just stop him on the street and say, Hey, Bob, can you narrate my introduction to the afterlife? What I'm saying is, even if you don't recognize the name Bob Balaban, the second you hear his voice, you'll say, oh yeah, that guy. That's because Bob is one of the most versatile character actors in Hollywood. He's popped up in everything from Moonrise Kingdom to Close Encounters of the Third Kind to the original off-Broadway cast of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. He's also a director and a writer of a series of children's books about a crime-solving dog and the son of a Chicago theater family dynasty, and the list goes on. So his latest project is a spy thriller TV series called Condor, airing now on DirecTV's audience network. Bob Balaban isn't really the guy you immediately go to when you think about spies trying to outrun and outgun each other, but that's what makes him weirdly perfect for the series. There was a lot to talk about, and I promise the conversation isn't just Charlie Brown questions. Stay tuned. Oh, and just a note, the interview was recorded in a hotel back in January while Bob was at a press event for the show. So if you hear any background noise, that's why. But that shouldn't be a problem, because everybody shuts up for Bob Balaban. Bob, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. So looking over sort of your roles, have you done a regular TV series before this where you were in it in a number of episodes? I recurred. I mm-hmm. recurred on Seinfeld a little bit. Right. But... The one or two things that I desperately wanted to do that also desperately wanted me didn't get made into series. Oh, yeah. There was a wonderful thing for, I think it was HBO, but it was it was all about the internet. It was called Killer App, and it was like the, just the early days of stuff. And between getting cast to be in the pilot and making the pilot, the internet world exploded to the point that there was nothing new and fresh about what the pilot was. But eight months before... It seemed like it was the pilot that predicted the future, and it did. It predicted it so well, it predicted itself out of being. Well, that that kind of takes my next question because I was going to ask if you've been in pilots that haven't gone. Well, that was well. We didn't do the pilot, but we almost uh-huh. did. And I was in Pitch, okay. a series, a couple years ago, and then I talked my way out of being in the series, which is kind of stupid because it was really good writing. And I thought, well, you know, I don't think there's that much to do, and I don't want to be tied down for six years unless I know just what I'm doing. But you can't do that. You have to just jump into a pilot and hope it turns out. And so instead, I recurred on it. So I came back three or four times, and that was really interesting. So I was kind of warmed up for this idea, and then they asked me to do Condor, and there was no, no difficulty in deciding. It was like you don't get offered that many things that are smart, and you like the people, and you would want to do it. So you, you know. So you do it. So that's something you've kind of warmed to, that idea of having a role that you keep coming back to. But even in the times you've recurred, like on Seinfeld or on Pitch or something like that, as you've returned to the character, have you like found new things about them? Is that fun for you? Well, one of the things that ends up being fun, if it's well written, Mm -hmm. and these things have been for the most part, it gets better. It doesn't get worse. I mean, and on something like this, it's 10 episodes a year. I could do that for 20 years. Your character expands. Uh, it's not like doing a sitcom where everybody, he's the one who makes the joke about the pigeon. She's the one who always falls down every time she enters the room. Yeah, This is a chance. Next year, who knows what we're going to be doing? Yeah, uh, I find it exciting. Yeah, And, yeah. and, a, and a, a growth experience in terms of acting. I read a little bit about your biography, and it sounds like when you, you came up in Chicago, and it sounds like you always just had 
show business or the theater or something like that, at least adjacent to your life or very much a part of your life? Well, my family was in the movie business from a billion years ago. They they came to Chicago escaping a pogrom in Russia. Mm. They ran for their lives and ended up in Chicago. And after a little bit, my grandmother, they had a little dying delicatessen in a horrible ghetto area of Chicago, and she hated being in the failing delicatessen business. And she went to a Nickelodeon and came back and said there were seven brothers, my dad being the baby, and anyway. Uh, so she comes back and she says, we're going into the movie business. Eight years later, they had 120 theaters in the Chicago area. And then my dad's older brother, who's a really lovely man, my uncle Barney, Adolf Zucker came to him, and Paramount was distributing all their movies through the Balaban theaters in the Chicago area, and said, well, I'm getting old. It's the Depression. I can't do this by myself. Barney, why don't you take over Paramount, and I'll become the chairman of the board, and you'll run Paramount. And he did that for about 35 years, and one of my other relatives went and ran a lot of the musicals at MGM in the musical period. I mean, I was just a little geek from Chicago who never thought I'd be part of anything much, and these were my, you know, relatives. But I visited them enough that it was really deeply embedded somewhere. I used to go around to movie theaters with my dad. They'd collect the box office receipts sometimes. And all I wanted to do was stand in there and look at the curtain. Hmm. He said, what are you looking at? I said, I'm in a theater. It's really exciting. (laughs) And you know what it's like. If you love something, you'll love it. And then I got to California when I was about 10 and stayed on a movie set for a full day watching everything. And when it was over, I didn't say it or anything. But I think... Oh, okay. I got to find something here. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a a memory of like a first time going to the movies or was it just always part of your life? Um, no, I more remember first time going to theater. Hmm. I mean, I remember when that happened, but I don't remember the beginning of going to movies because I probably always did. Uh, and also I had a movie pass. You know, anybody in the family had one and you just go and flash it and take all your friends from school. So I could go to any movie I wanted as many times and however, so I don't think I thought it was a big deal. Mm. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, it's not so hard. And, and, and they just let you in and you bring your friends. Yeah. I do remember seeing Guys and Dolls yeah. when I was fairly little. My dad used to screen movies for his, he had some theaters too. Uh, and they used to have screenings at the office. They had, you know, projectionists and all that stuff. And I came with him when I was 10, to see an X-rated movie. Hmm. But when I say X-rated, it wasn't X-rated like now it would be. It was called I Am a Camera. It's cabaret. You know who it is. It's the yeah. Berlin Diaries. Right, right, right. And it was over, and I said to my mother, it wasn't dirty. I thought this was going to be a dirty movie. And she said, well, when they say we made love, that means they had a sexual relationship. And I thought, this is really strange. <laughs> but to make me, make it be that they weren't just dragging me to see adult movies... As a special treat, they showed me the first hour of the movie of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow. Now, when was it made? 38? 39. Something like 39. That. Yeah, something like that. And so we, you, people forget this. You couldn't see these things. Yeah. They weren't rerun on television all the time. They didn't have revival theaters particularly. They had a, like a Friday afternoon horror show that you could watch or at night, Vampire or whatever you would see. So it was unusual. And I knew about The Wizard of Oz a lot, but I never saw it. And they showed it to me a little past where the movie goes into color and she arrives in Oz. And, yeah, I was like a a goner at that point. Yeah, I'm sure. What were your favorite movies or shows at that when you were a kid? Like, uh, were you drawn to these kind of more action-packed stories like a lot of us were? The things I remember really, really enjoying, I I liked a lot of different things. I liked comedies. I liked The Thin Man was something I really liked. I loved scary movies. I was a big... I watched all the early horror films on those weird programs that you could see, and they were rerun then because, you know, Lon Chaney and and Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man, The Mummy, 
I'm still scared of mummies. <laughs> I mean, I loved all those things. At one point, I decorated my room to be like the, the mummy movie. Uh, and combined with the Invisible Man, so I had all these artifacts around that I had, like, you know, pretended they were artifacts. And I would make my friends come into the room. I'd hide in the bathroom, and I had attached strings to everything, so I could artfully move the strings and making it seem like the room was like mysteriously infected <laughs> with invisible people. And they didn't really believe it, but yeah. I did stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I was very geeky. I am very geeky. I knew some kids in high school who did that with an abandoned house out in the country oh. and invited the girls out, and they all shrieked. And I used out. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had a thing at camp. We had like a haunted house thing when we had a, a mixer when the girls thing came over. And I really went all out. And then I played a, a – and then they would come across me and I'd be a mind reader in the haunted house. And I had secretly gone around and learned stuff about people the way mind readers really do. And they came in and I I met – I don't know if she's listening – Daphne Hill. I never forgot her. She was like 10 and then I ran into her once later. Because I could tell her everything, like what school she went to and stuff she was interested in, I had really done some heavy research on a few people. It could have been the beginning of a beautiful relationship, but nothing really happened, though. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I'm fascinated by is you were in the original production of a show that everybody has performed or seen at some point in their life, I yes, think. Uh-huh. Uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Yep. You were Linus. Yeah. It's one of your, like, it's probably one of your earliest parts. Well, I was in college oh, at okay. the time. Yeah. Um, and when I was 16 or 17, I was in summer stock doing something. And this elderly woman who was 38 years old or something <laughs> said to me, young man, wherever they have parts for people who look really intelligent, you're going you're to get jobs. I mean, <laughs> notice she didn't say who are intelligent. Said, you know, you kind of look like an intelligent yeah. person. And my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, we were both going to NYU. She said, they're having auditions for something. You have to be five foot six or under, go. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. Already the competition has been narrowed fairly severely. And I got the part of being Linus. We didn't know. I mean, we knew what Charlie Brown was, but this was there was no show or anything. And in fact, there wasn't a script for Charlie Brown. What happened was there had been an album that Orson Bean had starred in and a wonderful actress named Barbara Minkus that you don't know, but she sang great. Lucy and all the characters were in a singing album mm-hmm. that's, that was Charlie Brown, but they didn't have a story or anything. So when we started rehearsals, we all learned our songs and stuff. And they gave us piles of the books. And we went home and circled our favorite little cartoons that got turned into little gentle sketches, uh, you know, pretty close to the cartoons, expanded a little tiny bit. And then I think one of the actors, maybe Gary Berghoff, who became Radar on MASH years later, I think between Gary and maybe Reva Rose, who played Lucy, they they wrote some connective tissue like, and and the show became, it began in the morning and it ended that night. Because being about children who were simple, the show really wanted to be simple. And it turned out to be, I think, a great show because it so stayed within the confines of what it should have stayed. didn't try to be sophisticated. It didn't dazzle you. It was so... Everything about it was simple. The scenery was one block. And when you took the block apart, you could sit somewhere. One was a table. One became Schroeder's piano. Everything about it was suited to be small. And we got to be, for a minute, the toast of New York, you know, for five minutes. And I remember we got invited to Molina Mercury's house. She had a party for the cast of Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. It's like the star of Never on Sunday cavorting with people playing six-year-olds was really nice. Did you find it easy to tap into your essential Linus or was that was that a stretch? Unfortunately, <laughs> it was way too easy. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, uh, I, I do want to ask about – you've worked with Wes Anderson a few times. And uh, to me, I, I one of my favorite roles of yours is Moonrise Kingdom. Where I love you liter- Moonrise Kingdom. You literally just look at the camera and state facts about this fictional <laughs> setting. This is the island of New Penzance, 
16 miles long, forested with old growth pine and maple, crisscrossed by shallow tidal creeks, Chickchaw territory. There are no paved roads, but here comes Jed with the mail. But instead, many miles of intersecting footpaths and dirt trails and a ferry that runs twice daily from Stone Cove. How do you make that kind of character interesting? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But I do know I love the words. First of all, I read the whole thing and I just was like, oh, God, as you would with Wes. But when I showed up, I came for the first week of the movie and it was just me. Mm. And we went to different locations and I would talk. And from the beginning, Wes, without without showing me to how to do anything, wanted me to get an idea of what I would be like in the frame, mm. which directors don't usually do and don't see that. Nobody would understand what a helpful thing that was for me to know. And Wes would kind of show me he had acted out my part in, and he'd be on the corner or you, he'd be, you'd be shooting up at him. Somehow or other, it doesn't make any sense, seeing where I was geographically made me know who to be and how to, how to do it and what to do. And then him doing it because I didn't do it like him, but just the idea of somebody up there almost reading a script mm-hmm. was very magical. Yeah. And then strangely enough, sometimes I would actually internalize these things just from doing it over and over a million times. I don't know. It was one of the more fun things I've ever done. The only bad thing was we shot on an island called Patience Island that has more ticks in the <laughs> world than any other place has ever had ticks. And you'd take out a book to read and like there would be 35 ticks sitting on the white paper because you could see them like that. But I did have more fun in that movie than I've had in a long time doing anything because of Wes. Well, uh, you have always had your hand sort of – you've tried so many things. You've directed. You've written. You've written books. You've done all a number of things. Like what gets you interested in a project? Like what gets you excited about doing something? Well, it's two things I think because I don't really know. But certain things just I find really interesting. Um, but it has to be two things. I have to get excited about it. And then I have to be excited enough because I'm very ADD-ish. I was never diagnosed because when I was little, they didn't call it anything, but I suspect I am. And if it keeps popping up in my mind, that means I must really be interested because I forget about everything. I'm like here and then I'm over there. So if it sticks with me a little bit, Gosford Park stuck with me very quickly. In the beginning, I had been reading some Agatha Christie novels and, and shorter stories that were in my office. And I went... Robert Altman should really be directing Agatha Christie. The idea of putting him in that rigor seemed really exciting. I thought about it. It didn't go away. I I knew Robert because part of the reason I thought of Robert because I had to know what famous directors do I know that would be willing to talk to me about something like this. And so I went to Robert and he thought it was a good idea and we just stuck on it. And it was just, it was both the idea of the project but putting it with Robert meant to me there was some chemistry going on between a genre that's rigorous. It's got definitions as to what makes it. And then Robert's going to try to break all this, these conventions. And between the two of them, they'll come up with something great. And he did. Yeah. yeah. So that, that happened with that. You mentioned uh, <clears throat> Gosford Park. Like it sort of connected to the idea of Robert Altman mm-hmm. uh, doing an Agatha Christie book. Like do you find that happens as like ideas that seem separate will start to glom together in your head? Um, kind of. Uh, I'm actually making a documentary or two these days, and and I suddenly thought I read a book called Maxwell Street. It's about the Jewish ghetto in Chicago. Uh, it's nonfiction, obviously, 
and it investigates lots of families. And my family was one of the families that it went to in the book. And it starts in about 1880, and, and it doesn't, and it sort of gives you a glimpse of what happens to the families. But I'm also involved with some documentaries now, so I thought, what if I did a combination documentary movie miniseries about Maxwell Street? I've always loved it, and being one of the families in it, I have a personal interest in the whole thing, and I know a bit about that story. But it's the story of William Paley. It's the story about uh, the man who started the nuclear navy. It's the story about Arthur Goldberg, a, a member of the Supreme Court, one of the earliest Jews who was a member of that. Jack Ruby was on Maxwell Street, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Benny Goodman was on Maxwell Street. It's an aggregation of an immigrant population that came here. Nobody wanted them. They didn't have a penny. They lived in utter poverty. They were escaping. They were literally, it's like leaving Syria. They left Russia when the, when the, when the pogroms were going on. And look what these people became. So... Since I'd been dealing a lot with documentaries, I started talking to Rick Burns uh, of the Ken and Burns documentary, Brilliant People, and he's a wonderful man and a really talented person. So we're kind of now in the very early stages of working on a hybrid uh, show that would be half scripted, uh, very realistic, very, very internalized about what's happening with these poverty-stricken Jewish families all ganging up together, They, you know, nine kids in one room, like immigrant families still do. And we're combining it with a documentary about each of the families. Uh, so, and it goes, skips about in time period. So you'll be, you'll be living with one of these, with all of these families. And as they go to get their first job, then you'll see them 20 years later, get that first job. And eventually you'll, you'll, you actually can see, you, you can see their lives growing into what they're really going to grow into in real, in the real world. So I, I, it's, that's very exciting to me, but it's a combination combination of putting a few different things together. Yeah. There've been so many people in show business from Chicago and something about that city, like has a certain character to it that I can't quite define. What do you think you've gotten from being from Chicago? Second city I got from being in Chicago because I studied uh, with Viola Spolin at Second City when I was in high school. If people probably don't know her name, but she, she wrote a book called Theater Games and she literally invented the, the exercises that people do who are studying improvisation. She's an amazing woman. I didn't know at the time who she was, but I was a junior in high school then. And it immediately I glommed onto Mike Nichols and Elaine May and tried to listen to everything they did. And then three years later, I got a job in a play that Mike Nichols was directing. So it was like kind of all a little path from Chicago. I love being from Chicago and I'm very attracted to Midwesterners. There's a kind of a, I mean, everybody's the same everywhere, really. But the patina in Chicago is no patina. The patina in Chicago is don't brag, be low-key, just do whatever you're doing and don't make a big fuss about it. And there's, to me, an innate naivete that I can't get rid of. So it doesn't. it's not like I'm trying to be like that, but... I kind of assume people are good, even though I've run into some really nasty people. But I forget, usually after a year or two, I kind of don't remember who was being nasty. I have a generally optimistic attitude, and I kind of think in some level, most people, you can find a good side to them, and they would like to be good. And that's Midwestern. Yeah. I mean, to me, that is, and that that's Chicago to me. It's interesting, you know, it's called the second city for a reason. Um, there's a lot of complexes there used to be in Chicago. I think that's why they started having such a good opera company and so so much culture because they were always being beaten up. You're not New York, you're not New York. And it's got a great theater community now too. I was too young when I left Chicago. They didn't, you know, they, they were just about to have 
uh, Gary Sinise was about to start Steppenwolf, and a lot of that stuff was going on, but I kind of missed it. I left at the, when the big deal in Chicago was dinner theater. <laughs> so I performed in front of lobsters and lamb chops. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do in dinner theater? I, I grew up uh, near the Chanhassen Dinner Theater in, uh-huh. in Minneapolis. So okay. I've been to many plays in okay. dinner theaters. Well, I was at Pheasant Run Playhouse okay. in Chicago. <laughs> I did Play It Against Sam. I mm. played the Woody Allen part. Mm. The way they build it on the marquee, they, they said something like, Play It Against Sam, Woody Allen, apostrophe, little tiny apostrophe, I said play, and then real small on the bottom, Bob Balabat. And I actually <laughs> think people thought that I was Woody Allen. I mean, they didn't know him that well, and I was short and Jewish mm. and didn't have that much hair. Um, so I did that, and I did Come Blow Your Horn mm. at another dinner theater in Chicago whose name escapes me completely, mm. I forget. And it was great. I mean, you rehearse for five days. You learn the part in a minute, uh, and you do the play with a bunch of people who would rather look at their plates than look at you. And it's really good training for, for you know, just go ahead and do it, and, and if you're doing your best, somebody will watch. What did What did you learn about acting from having to compete with people who would probably rather be eating? Well, I'm I'm afraid I haven't learned enough, so I, I, I can't say I probably learned too much from that. But in my early days, uh, being in summer stock and doing things that I really wasn't right for or couldn't do or whatever, in the beginning, and I'm not that way at all right now, and I wish I were, I was fearless. Mm. I didn't know I couldn't do stuff. I didn't know it would be hard. I didn't. I would star in a musical. I did. Uh, I did How to Succeed in Business without really trying when I was about 17 or 18 in summer stock with Stu Irwin. You mm. do, do you remember Stu Irwin? I, I've heard of him. Yeah. No, he had a wonderful TV show when I was like four and a half, mm. and uh, he was in it. And uh, maybe for that it was a musical. We had seven days. We didn't have three and a half days. Mm. And you had to learn a leading role in a complicated long musical, and that you have to talk to and wear costumes and dance around and everything. And I just did it like was natural. Mm. Right now, if I get a part in something, I start studying months in advance. Yeah. I go to a coach. I, I learn how to walk again. It's like, oh, I forgot how to talk. I'll have to have talking <laughs> lessons. Um, but in the beginning, it was, I, it was such a pleasure not to fuss so yeah. much. Yeah. What, what, uh, what I wasn't you? very good, but, but I, I was brave. What research did you do for Condor, if any? Well, I didn't really do any research. I, um, I thought reading the scripts carefully was what I really needed to do because it wouldn't really help to find out what those people in the CIA are doing. It was like, what are we in the CIA doing? I guess you could say watching television in the last three years has not taught you an awful lot about what this thing is about, although it's devoid of politics. There's internal politics with the CIA, but much like there used to be a cartoon called Miss Peach. I don't know if you remember it. It was mm-hmm. all about little kids. Mm-hmm. And the adults were portrayed as feet walking around. You know, sometimes you'd see them holding an umbrella, but all you saw was the people that was that was affecting. So in our show, you don't get you don't see this overstructure. You just see the CIA structure, and you see what you're doing and what the other people in the CIA are doing in our personal lives. But everything that you watch on CNN and Fox News is gone, except from the point of view of what's going on with the CIA. And it's really interesting to be in a world, it is contemporary, we're not pretending we're doing this in 1970, we're doing it now, but it's it's a blessing not to be able to have to deal with the President of the United States, the, the real attorney general, 
any of the stuff that we're that the news is about. This is about what you only hear glancingly in the news, and that gets all the detail. And that, I find that very interesting. I've talked to a lot of actors who have said they'll like read audition sides or something and be like, "Okay, I get this character." Mm-hmm. Have you had that experience all the time? Yeah, I mean, do you remember when, when it happens? Yeah. When I, yeah, I did a movie called Jacob the Liar that uh, with Robin Williams. I loved working with Robin, and I loved him as a person. And his wonderful wife, Marsha, uh, produced the movie, and she kind of nurtured it. And and when I read that, it's like, I've never done anything like it. You had to kind of have a Polish-Yiddish accent, which I had to do a lot of research for because it's very tricky to, you know, it's so specific. Uh, yeah, I, I read that and picked it up, and I thought, I understand everything about this. And uh, and it was... And it was an easy, fun thing to be doing. I mean, a lot of it was people were in pain. It was about uh, a ghetto being transported to a concentration camp. It wasn't a laugh riot, but it did have humor in it. And that was something I picked it up and I understood it pretty quickly. I mean, right away. And I had a strong... But but I have some kind of reaction to everything. And that's the easiest way of knowing not to do something. It's like, oh, it makes so much sense. It's a good part. They'll pay you. And it's like, yes, but I don't know who this person is. And, and it just doesn't say anything. I'm not that discerning. It's not like, you know, I don't end up doing a lot of stuff. Um, but I do I do have a very quick reaction. And it's not always correct. Directing, you better like it and then you better put it away for a little bit and read it again because first impressions can be really deceiving when you're directing because you can be attracted to the writing. But that's not what it's about. It's a whole thing. And sometimes don't have things that are not written that well, but there's something that could be really palpably wonderful and emotional on screen that and that you're directing, but you wouldn't know, you you, you didn't, you, you bypassed it because you were interested in the words. Yeah. Like an actor. Yeah. How have you found your directing to inform your acting and sort of vice versa? Well, to the extent I'm improving, and sometimes I am, I do find being on both sides of the camera, it helps you relax. It gets you much more aware of the whole process which makes it seem, it demystifies it. Not that it's, you know, after a million years, you're not, it's not mystical, but you do feel a lot more comfortable. I do anyway. And a lot of that's from being on both sides. And sometimes, literally from watching other actors, sometimes they get in trouble and you watch somebody else getting in trouble, you can help them and you kind of know what to say to them and you start saying that to yourself. Yeah. Mm. And that that's, I find that really helpful. When do you find in your own acting that you most get in trouble? Like when are, when do you corner yourself or like and have to find a way out? Well, one thing that sometimes happens is you will find yourself doing a scene and you are doing the idea of the scene, a preconceived notion that this was a kind of person. It happens to me all the time. I'll go, wait a minute. You had adjectives in your head thinking about who this person was. Be here right now. That person doesn't have to be who they seemed like to you. Who is he really or she and what is, what's going on in the scene? And stop acting a – stop fulfilling a preconceived notion that you have. Preconceived notions are really dangerous mm. uh, and I think they're dangerous for directors as well, which is why in some cases – it works up pretty well in movies. A lot, of, a lot of writers of movies direct their own movies and it works out really well in theater. Um, most of the time I work with people – who were directing their own material in theater, it was not a happy experience. And there is it's, it's kind of a nice thing about, about when an actor comes in who isn't doing what you thought they, they would do. You know, you as the director have ideas for things, and somebody comes in and it's just, 
brings to it something that you didn't even know was hiding inside of there. And sometimes that's the villain who doesn't seem like a villain, the, the happy person who doesn't seem that happy, whatever it is. Yeah. What are some of your favorite, like, smaller parts you've done? I'm not, not cameos like you were on set for a day or two, but... Mm-hmm. Mostly, some of them are in things you never heard of, <laughs> and some of them I don't even, unfortunately, know the names of. Yeah. I did a movie with a student of mine. I, I had taught... Uh, I taught acting for directors at Columbia University. It was a really nice course to be involved with. I enjoyed it. One of my students got a movie to direct and asked me to be in his movie. Um, And here's where I forget what the name of the movie is. But it was really interesting. It was about trains and um, Mary Steenburgen was in it and her father was involved. I think her father was like owned a railroad or something like that. And it had very good people in it. And I got to be from Chicago. Mm. And I just loved my part and nobody's ever seen this movie. And I got to have a Chicago accent. <laughs> and and I, I hopefully it was better than that a little bit. But I just had so much fun being doing a part with an accent that I've been trying to avoid having for my entire life. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly be able to plunge into being from Chicago. Uh, that, that was a, a modest, well, they're all modest little parts mostly. But uh, but that one I especially enjoyed for reasons I... I it can't just be that I had an accent and liked it, but it could be. That's how you know. That's how surfacey I can be. Huh. Well, we've talked about sort of your early days in as a child watching movies, TV shows. Like, when did you kind of know you wanted to try acting? I didn't officially know it, except as a puppeteer. When I replaced the puppets with me at one point, mm. I thought I'd be a writer. I got a job on a TV series out of high school yeah. uh, from Summer Stock from doing. Oh, Enter Laughing. And I got a job, and I got to start an episode of a TV series. And I think probably right around that time, I thought, I guess I could do this. I was terrible. Hmm. Um, and then I started getting jobs in New York and theater. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would prepare, quite prepared to be a writer if I could have been. I probably could have been. I write some stuff now. Famously, you have a small part in Midnight Cowboy, which is... Uh, I do. It, it was considered by some friends of mine and uh, mentored people like, don't do that part. <laughs> uh, you'll never work again. Well, it was a period when, you know, if you were playing a gay character, you know, it was the, the world was different. Than, but it, literally, it wasn't because I was so altruistic or anything. I just said, I'm an actor. You're supposed to act well-written things and what a treat to be in something like this. And we, the audition for that was John Point was there, mm-hmm. and I hadn't known John, obviously, and uh, it was improvised because mm-hmm. I guess they had a script, but the script was so confining because it was such a neatly, tidily written thing that they were exploring, and I could always improvise. It's the one thing I feel relatively comfortable doing no matter what. So when in doubt, I just try to like make it up, and John and I had the most wonderful improvised scene in the bathroom where he was trying to take my watch. Yeah. And... Um, my first day of work, the movie was done. I had three scenes. One was in May, one was in August, and one was in October. Yeah. It was that long because the movie locations were all over the place. And I did the last scene first where John Boyd tries to take my watch in the bathroom. And I remember thinking, okay, what am I doing in the bathroom? Oh, I'll be throwing up. <laughs> so I decided I was throwing up. I don't remember if that made it into the movie. Mm. And then John tries to take my watch, and we have this scene in this struggle. Well, for now, I'm sorry you're sick. <laughs> But you're gonna have to give me that money, like you say it. I was lying. I don't have it. What are you gonna do to me? You ain't got no twenty-five dollars on you. No. What are you gonna do to me? What the hell do you think I'm gonna do? What are you gonna do to me, boy? You want to be on me? No. 
And John Schlesinger, who I really thought was a lovely man, and he was a wonderful director, he was, he was saying things like to me, Bob, can you be more pitiful? <laughs> you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff like that. And John was whispering in my other, just do whatever you were doing in the improvisation, <laughs> you know, trying to remember that. And I thought, this is hard, you know, yeah. this, this movie thing. And I also remember on the famous going down section where I had to, oh, my God, we must have done a hundred takes, of, mm. you know. And obviously we didn't do anything, but I did have to be kneeling on the on the rug. And for some reason, it got through. It was like a very bristly rug. And by the end of the day, my knees were like practically bleeding from mm-hmm. being on the rug for such a long time. So you were in uh, Charlie Brown, which is this huge hit. Mm-hmm. Midnight Cowboy was one of your next-ish roles. Wins Best Picture. Like, did you have a sense that this is just the way it is? I had no sense of anything. <laughs> yeah. And I was in Catch-22 at the same time. Yeah. Basically, because when you're... When you're 21 or whatever I was, you know, they're all looking for who's the next person that would be interesting. You don't have to be, maybe it's a character actor. It's not a star or just some niche or something. They really do pay attention. And then you get to be 27 and everybody, and they're like a million 27-year-olds. But they do look at, you know, people in new plays and stuff. So I got up for some really good things right away. Well, we're heading down toward the end of the show. So I want to ask. I think, has it been 10 hours? (laughs) No, you shouldn't ask me to talk so much. But I do want to ask you about some of your really famous parts that people will, you know. Well, I'm not aware of having famous parts, so (laughs) you tell me what they are. I want to start with, um, this is kind of an interesting situation. uh, So we're going to do it in kind of a lightning round, I guess, of where you played a character named Russell on Seinfeld. Oh, yes. And now have played the man he was semi-based on, Warren Littlefield. You played him, you read his audio book. It's it's kind of strange as an and actor. And I played him in The Late Shift yes, yes. before yes. that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange as an actor, I imagine, to have a, that kind of connection to someone who's living. Like, and I what, know and like him, too. Yeah, what's that relationship been like? Well, I don't know him that well, but we like each other. We mm-hmm. talk occasionally, and he asked me to read his book. And I went to him when they asked me to do The Late Shift because I didn't know if he was on board with this or not. And uh, and I said, you know, there's a scene where I'm sitting on the toilet with my pants down. <laughs> I, I want to make sure that this doesn't like really offend you that I would be in the late shift. And he said, no, no, it's fine. He said, but make sure, he said, wear expensive ties. <laughs> he said, because in movies, they they never give you expensive ties and it's a giveaway for it because all you can wear is an expensive tie. Everybody's suits look pretty much the same. And that was his advice. So th- that was fine. Uh, and then when I did Seinfeld, he was one of the producers of the show, wasn't he? Why, mm. why was yeah, he? Oh, because it was NBC. It was on NBC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big, big surprise. He was, on, <laughs> he was the head of NBC. And I was playing the head of NBC again, but wasn't him. And it wasn't written to be to be Warren. It was written to be Russell. Yeah. Um, and I only did it four or five times. And my agent said, oh, they want you to do like a, a an arc on Seinfeld. And I was like, I think I've seen it once. <laughs> so I went and I did it. And it was fine and all that. But I did an episode, came back to New York, walked down the street, and every car was stopping and honking. <laughs> Literally, I'm just like a silly little adjunct character for four <laughs> times. But it's like, oh, hi, Russell, you know, like yeah. all that. And yeah. uh, that was really interesting. <laughs> and I do have to ask about Close Encounters, which mm. I saw on the on the big screen for the first time this oh, fall okay. when it had the revival. And, and uh, the new yeah. really mastered everything, yeah. I guess. And it's a beautiful movie. Uh, just do you have like one specific memory of working on this like Titanic film? My two biggest memories are one very, very specific one. I was called to audition, but you didn't have to audition. I didn't have to audition exactly. But for this part, to be the interpreter of Francois Truffaut, I had to just speak French. That mm-hmm. was my audition that day. And do you really speak French? Oh, sure, yeah, I'm really, really good. But I'm not really good, but I have a good <laughs> accent. Right. So 
I come in and we're and it's Julia Phillips and Stephen. I don't think Dreyfus was there and Marion Doherty because my first like three or four movies, they were always Marion Doherty in the same office. It was very comforting in a funny sort of way. And they say, well, talk to us in French a little bit. And I say, il y avait beaucoup d'années depuis que j'ai parlé français. Si vous donnez ce boulot, ce sera très difficile pour moi. It's been many years since I've spoken French, and if you give me this job, it will be very difficult for me. <laughs> but I'm not lying. I don't want to be caught lying because they'll sue me one day. So I said that. And they said, oh, yeah, you sound like you're speaking French. And we talked about some other things. And then, then they said, well, just regale us for a while in French. And I said... Oh, la cigale enchantée tout l'été se trouve à faire des pourvues quand le bis... And I went on and on. It's The Ant and the Grasshopper by Rochefoucauld or somebody. And I had memorized the entire poem in seventh grade and fortunately held on to it because I, I slid by when it rhymed because you obviously I wouldn't be talking conversationally in rhyme. And that was like, well, you really are wonderful. And then I went out and they said, you got the job. And I immediately went to Berlitz and took an intense 10-day course in how to speak French. Avez-vous des maux de tête, des migraines? Having headaches, migraines. Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus. An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses. Yeah. Des démangeaisons, des allergies. Do you have hives? Do you have uh, allergies? Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps. You're burning uh, on your face and on your body. Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle. A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? So I remembered that. And the other thing I remembered was, the whole thing was a fabulous experience. Being with Francois Truffaut for eight months, standing next to him, nobody else spoke French except his translator, who was a really nice person, but... It wasn't fun for him to be with his professional translator. So we hung out all the time. I got to translate for him. He gave me a script to read that I had to translate for him and tell him what it was about, et cetera, et cetera. And the first time I met him was in Gillette, Wyoming, where we shot the real exteriors. There really sure. is a devil's tower. Mm -hmm. And we were there for a week or two weeks. Everything like that would normally take three days would take three months because of special effects. It was a long time. And we go to a little restaurant in Gillette, Wyoming, And Francois, in his French and my holding French, in his even worse English than my French was even better than his English, he wanted me to explain to him what chicken fried steak was. <laughs> and it's like, that was the beginning. And I, I loved him anyway, but I immediately loved him because the irony of me playing his interpreter and not being able to speak a word of French, basically. <laughs> um, he, he found it so droll, and it was so much like Antoine Doinel would get into yeah. a situation like that. Yeah. Um, that it just, you know, I fell in love with him, and it was like standing around for eight months yeah. telling fun stories. And there's a I wrote a book about it called The Close Encounters Diary. That really was my experiences there. And, and Stephen wrote the introduction for it, which was really nice of him to do. And I hadn't realized it, but there was one scene where we're in India and we're getting out and we're about to see the men in the yellow robes point at the sky and all right. that. And it always starts with us. We drive up in a car and get out. And Stephen wrote in his introduction, because I had never known this, Stephen said, I was kind of like Francois' babysitter, you know, yeah. whatever it was. I kind of kept him amused and whatever. He said, but he always wondered... When we got out of the car, every time, and, we'd, and then we'd run up with our fingers pointing out, he said, 
Francois seemed mysteriously amused all the time. What was I doing to elicit that response in him? It was like we were telling each other jokes because <laughs> we wanted to see if I could make jokes into French that would be funny and, and could get him to laugh. So that was literally what we were doing the whole time. It was, it was a magical experience. Well, we end every episode by asking some of the same questions. What's a part you've always wanted to play but have never gotten to, whether it's like a specific one like King Lear or just like I would like to play a banker, something like that? I would like to have a part where I got to say a lot of things and like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the next question is, when you are recognized by people on the street, like what is it that they recognize you for most often? Mostly it's Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it really is like some movie I forgot that I did, but they watched it on cable television a hundred times or <laughs> on the internet or, you know, because yeah. now I think it used to be if you were a character actor, people almost had to study to figure out what you were in and yeah. like, oh, look, they're in that... But now they show everything that you've ever done, even the most horrible things you wish would go away. They show them over and over and over again. So I get many different things. I get a certain amount of the M. Night Shyamalan movie I did. What was that called? Uh, Lady in the Water. Lady in the Water. Mm -hmm. I get that sometimes, which is interesting. Mostly I get Seinfeld. And then very much I get Ron Rifkin, oh, that, that you're Ron. But I, they tell me <laughs> things that Ron was in. And I go, yes, thank you so much. I'm glad you like that. And and often I get, no, no, you're, I don't know you from being an actor. Uh, you were in high school with my cousin. It's like, no, I wasn't in high school with your cousin. But, you know, and I, I now have this little speech. It's like, oh, don't I know you? And I used to go, well, I'm an actor. Well, what have you done? And I'd name five movies and they would never have heard of any of the five <laughs> movies, et cetera. So now I've got it down to a thing, which I mean, you know, but at least it's like I'm coping with it. I say, you really don't know who I am. I'm an actor. I'm not famous. You've seen me in a hundred million things and you have a vestigial memory of what I look like, but you will not know who I am and you're not expected to. So that's okay. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. And that's mostly what it is. I look like somebody who's been around a long time that looks familiar, which and, is true. And finally, who's the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? They can be alive or dead. Oh, I can't. I, I, if I could tell you his name, I could work on it. In The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, mm. there is a scene with a Nazi who is a Nazi, but he's just a Nazi because he's German and they made him be a Nazi. There's a 10-minute sequence in that movie where the camera doesn't stop and he tells the story of what it's like to fight on both sides and to understand who Nazis are and who the people are. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen. I think about it all the time. Yeah. And I fucking should know his name. <laughs> but I, I, it, as soon as this is over, I'll, I'll, I can tell you his name because it'll come to me when I don't need to know it. We'll put it in the end notes. But that to me is a... I mean, there are many, every time you work with anybody, I mean, to work with Bill Hurd is like amazing. Yeah. Um, Brendan Fraser did things. I went, I mean, I've always liked him, but when you're up close with somebody, you're doing something, yeah. it's, you just can't believe it. And it's really inspiring. Yeah. We'll, we'll put that actor's name at the end of the show, Bob Eldon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. Uh, Condor is on the Audience Network. Well, really nice talking to you. Thank you. I Think You're Interesting is currently being beamed out into space where alien civilizations are listening to it and saying, who is this guy? Well, that guy is Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of this show and also me. Our wonderful producer is Bridget Armstrong, the excellent executive producer of audio at Vox Media's Nishap Kurwa. Our terrific sound design, thanks to Miles Yule. Our beloved logo, thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager, Alex Allreich. And our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's episode was recorded at the Langham Hotel in Pasadena, California in January, and our recording engineer was Che Brooks. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever fine podcasts are sold. It helps us get great guests and helps us get the word out about the show. You can also email me, Todd at Vox.com, or you can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com, and we'll all read it and talk about it and say hello to you. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI, that is on the Twitter, TVOTI, Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with a visit from some of my favorite people who are making great stuff online. And until then, you know, Bob Balaban, that name sounds like it should be a tongue twister. So I want everybody who's listening to this right now, try to say it 15 times as fast as you can. Bob Balaban, Bob Balaban. See, you can't do it. You can't do it.